America. My name is Aaron Yosef Frimpong, and I'm coming to you live every Friday to do what I do and try to help you make sense of your political moment. Last Friday, I didn't do the show, but I gave you two shows last Friday, one on WandaVision, which I think is kind of a WandaVision. Wanda is white people. Comes over, takes over a town, and then is upset when they want their minds back. And everyone has to, uh, is forced to behave as if they like her. All right, so that one that was WandaVision. I did a show there, and uh, I did a second show on the Bessemer, Alabama union election, wherein people aren't voting for whether they want a union or they don't want a union in Bessemer, Alabama. They're voting on whether they're going to risk their livelihood and their job uh, shutting down, or whether they don't want to risk their livelihood and their job shutting down. So it's not a union election. It's an existential question for a lot of good people in Bessemer, Alabama. So I did two shows last week, even though I didn't do one on Friday. I took my family to a yurt. We went to a yurt, like a little tent in one of the uh, parks. I got a three, a five, and a, a three, a six, and an eight-year-old. So it was actually good family fun. So we did that for a weekend and uh, did it on a budget. You know, just a big kind of a, it's like a, how do you explain what a yurt is? It's a, it's a big tent, but uh, a little bit bigger and a little bit nicer. It was nice. It was good. I have no... Zero problems with my yurt life. Uh, okay, so today we're going to talk a little bit about, we're going to talk a lot of, uh, you know, I, I, we're going we're gonna to get deep. So I'm giving people a little bit of time to warm up because when I get going, it's going to be hard to kind of jump in if you're watching this live, unless you started in at the beginning. I will give you one more, uh, one more question to think about while I, before I hit the opening. About the Atlanta shooter, the guy who, you know, had some sort of sexual issues. And so he went up and shot up a bunch of massage parlors because he thinks happy endings were sent to entice him from the devil. And um, he, instead of, you know, <laughs> you know, just kind of being at peace with himself, he went to rid the world of temptation. <laughs> uh, he made a him problem an everybody problem, which is something white people tend to do. And... I uh, shot up, uh, I think it killed eight people. Six of them are Asian women. And, and uh, what does that mean? And so, yeah. And you know, he was taught this crappy purity politics from his church who I'm sure, and they've released a statement, but I don't need to read. It. I already know what it says. And someone, I, someone who read it, like I told them what I think it said. And they said, it said exactly that. So I'm going to believe it. Um, uh, you know, I'm sure the pastor prayed on it. And, you know, the congregation came together and thought about it and decided that none of it was their fault, <laughs> as white people are, tend to do. Um, so, yeah, so the guys shot through with a quality of purity uh, politics that, would you believe, ends in racial terror? And it would be hard for the, to believe, except purity politics and, like, run through white people in the United States always ends in racial terror. So this idea that, um, you know, the Southern Baptist Church, and if you don't know anything about the Southern Baptist Church, Southern Baptist Church is the church that, like, <laughs> wanted to treat bad people so, black people so badly that even, like, other Baptists had to split from it. And that's why they're the Southern Baptist Church. They're like, no. Um, and, like, it comes from, and it, 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 people say, well, it's misogyny, not racism. Well, no. No, if you only see, if you think of sex as in like massage parlors and run by Asians, like you have already fetishized a lot of things 
going on in your mind in your mind so like your your sexual ethics is racist uh, you know i i spent some time in jakarta and jakarta indonesia and there are a lot of sexpats it's like expatriates who are known to just kind of go over there to screw and you know because the dollar is strong and the political economy is such that um you know they just go over there to like be jerky americans and and screw the natives and our political economy is such that with globalization we've brought the sex pat industry to home so you don't now have to go to somewhere to get what you need so we have to talk about sex trafficking i'm not gonna talk about it on this show this show but like that we need to talk about sex trafficking insofar as why are a lot of these folks ending up working in massage parlors so why and i would like a federal job guarantee so that um you know, I have, a, I have a complicated view of sex work because I actually think it's possible that it's a service. So I'm, I'm not necessarily against it. And um, it could be like, I think, I don't know. I, I think people should be able to pay for sex if they want to. I'd, like the people should be able to pay for a lot of things that I don't necessarily wouldn't pay for myself. But other, like if someone wants to provide sex for money and someone wants to, provide money for sex I, I i think that that's possible plus a lot of a lot of a lot of black people we don't have the best marriages <laughs> but a lot of white marriages are just held together by the husband's money anyway so i don't want to say that there's these women in the suburbs and the mcmansions are prostitutes but like they're not not prostitutes or they're not not sex workers um so i said what i said and i'll continue to say what i say and if you like me saying what I'm saying, would you believe talking like this makes me down white unemployable, depending on who you talk to? So go to www.funkyacademic.com and kick in five, fifteen, or fifty dollars because you appreciate the quality of my mouth. <laughs> um, yeah. So you <laughs> because you know the white conservatives aren't going to pay me, and the white liberals aren't going to pay me for a variety of reasons. So I need you people who appreciate what I do every Friday to make sure that, you know, my kids stay in violin lessons and I get a marketing budget and, uh, you know, support the kind of work I do because the reason more people don't do the work because <laughs> that I do is not because this isn't how black people think. It's because this is, this isn't how white people let black people talk. So I need you to let me tell you the truth about you. And I say that to you both about, you know, the black people watching, but especially white people watching. You need me to tell you the truth because your black friends will not talk to you like this. And they should, but they won't because they're scared of their check. So, ah, uh, got that out of the way. Also, about the Atlanta shooter. I don't know, and this is an honest question, so I'm gonna actually look in chat while I roll the opening while the, the so people, the, the 100 people who are watching right now, I need you to tell me, so we know that white supremacy, like, as a feature, not a bug, a feature produces violent racists. It like some of them get like lumped into the military. Some of them come up into they become police officers. It just produces like like the same way Iowa grows corn. White supremacy produces uh, um, violent racists who are willing to do anything for the purity or whatever to keep America great again, whatever that means, they're willing to do it. And if it includes stringing up like whole communities, uh, dropping bombs on black people, they'll just do it. 
right? So we know that not like a not like a a bug, but a feature. Now the question is, and this is something I want you guys to think of: Is this a feature? Is like the random shooting the Kyle Rittenhouse is and the the Aaron I think Long is his last name. Is it a feature of white supremacy like pollution? Like just like an unfortunate the guys that the military won't take and the and the and the police won't take they get they get um kind of spun out and then ter- are like freelance terrorists, wildcat terrorists. Now, now is that is that what's going on? Is it is it just detritus left over, or does white supremacy need both the official terrorists and the cops and and the judges and all of them, and it also needs the unofficial wildcat terrorists as part of the whole ecosystem? That's that's the question. Like that's do we need the vigilante wildcat terrorism of the wild of the Rittenhouse as well as the official terror? Do they work in tandem and mutually support um each other, or does it spin it out as like just an extra part that it can it 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 necessarily spins out, but they're not proud of. It's like when someone it's like when you run a really dirty factory and you know someone's gonna lose an arm. But you're not, you don't want them to lose an arm. You don't need them to lose an arm. You'd rather them not lose an arm, but you're not going sh- to change the way you fa- your factory runs <laughs> in order to make sure they don't lose an arm. Or is it more like these people are actually useful for white supremacy too? And so we need to also make sure that we produce the white supremacists who go in the military, but also we need to produce like these like wildcat ones also. So um, to, to make sure that, that like everyone's just generically terrorized. All right, so that's, that's kind of a question. I think, I, I don't know if you need both kinds, or if you need one, or if the white supremacy needs one, and the other kind is just something that they're okay with. Like the same way that the, like the coal miners get black lung, right? The, the coal company doesn't want the coal miners to get black lung. They just don't care if the coal miners get black lung. Or is it something else where we need a different kind of foot soldier? A different, we need the official foot soldiers and the unofficial ones for it to, like, for it to work. So, um, all right, think on that while I hit the uh, opening. Never change the ways for the world or the government. If it was the president, then I would stay fat. You leave it up to me, I paint the White House black and ain't no future in your front. You know, one amusing thing, one amusing thing about, and you know, I, I hate to draw amusing things out of this, but my life's a terror show. So, you know, I get my, I get my kicks where I can. One amusing thing about this was the, the police officer uh, during the press conference the next day was like, well, you know, he just had a really bad day. As if he had a good day, he would be like mayor or something like that. <laughs> like we train these white supremacists to be really close to the edge, but not go over. But when they have a bad day, sometimes they go over. Like on a good day, he is your congressman. And I'm talking about Jody Heiss, my congressman. 
All right, so like my congressman's here, and you know my congressman's here, and the the massage park killer's here, and like you know we're over here. So like our white leaders are right, the conservative Christian ones are like right close to the edge of homicidal maniacs. But if they have a bad day, they could go right over. So sometimes we get mad, they get mad when, you know, they train them to be like right here. And then, you know, by mistake, they go over. They have a bad day and go over. I trained them to beat black people. I didn't train them to go home and beat his wife. <laughs> that's, 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 that's white people for you. Um, like that's, that's probably what the cop was thinking. So in the cop's mind, the killer isn't like anyone he doesn't like see at youth group <laughs> that the cop goes to, right? Um, it's just that when those people have a bad day, you can expect that this is what they do. Um, so, so now I'm going to go into the deep, the deep struggle. Now that I, it's with 13 minutes in, I wanted to warm up the audience because we're going to take out your notebooks because I'm going to go through a lot of moves. A philosophy, grad student, pretty advanced, you know, I teach this stuff. And so I'm going to go through a lot of moves. And I was actually doing uh, two lectures on Hegel this week. So it was all fresh that I didn't actually plan to loop into this, but it's a pretty big, good explanatory mechanism. So um, I'm going to start a third of the way through the story because taking, taking it all the way from the beginning is, is, is too technical to do. Uh, and the third of the way, it's good. And I, th and I think a third of the way you can actually start to understand anyway. But so in explaining and how the world works, we know that the world, it's understood poorly, but it's, just we, it's a commitment of natural consciousness that there are objects out there in the world that we as conscious things study. The truth is out there and uh, we study it. And the truth is out there, right? So... The donut immediately tastes tasty. I don't know it's going to give me diabetes or make, give me a gut or anything like that. I have to experience, through experience, I can learn, or someone else, my doctor or whoever, learns through that this eating not only is tasty, but also, like, you know, does bad things, has the power to do bad things to my body, right? So the donut's got these properties. These properties have powers, and these powers do things to my body. I don't know that from immediately tasting it, but I, I know it through experience that the donut is a more complex thing then it immediately um uh gets to me when i when i taste it right animals that don't have this kind of understanding end up eating themselves to death because they figure if it tastes good i should just keep doing it how could it be bad if it feels if loving you is wrong how could it be right <laughs> i don't want to be right which is actually a good song loving you is wrong i don't want to be right i'm gonna I'm going to listen to that right after this. Anyway, um, so the donut, immediately tasty. Turns out the donut is, uh, through experience and uh, watching other people, I understand that the donut has these other powers and it's a more complex object than, than it was uh, when it was just tasty. Cool, right? So that's the first third. Objects out there have an independent existence. That independent existence has powers. And while I explain this to people, I start to understand that, huh, I am kind of like that too, right? Myself is an object that has powers. And just like I have power over it, it has power over me. And I can, I, I, uh, I, I understand that I produce things out in the world and then to, to, to affirm myself, just like 
uh, you know, animals eat me to affirm themselves and, 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 and sustain their own livelihood. I eat them. And so like, wow, it's kind of like, so instead of the truth being out there, I come to understand we go from consciousness to self-consciousness. I come to understand myself as the truth, as a true object with my own independence. And since I am the truth, uh, as self-consciousness, the self becomes, uh, you run into a contradiction. So I'm the truth as a self, and then I'm still a, a factor of natural consciousness. So I'm a world, I'm aware that the world has an independent existence that could have power over me. The objects in the world have independence, right? So now I have a logical account of the desire to negate the independence of the things in the world and make them conform to being for me because I'm the truth. Right, and you kind of see this. Let's let me get my three-year-old right. So my three-year-old will be building with magnet blocks, and building with magnet blocks, and building with magnet blocks, and then like one of the magnet blocks will betray him, and will fall down, and then he gets upset because he wanted the magnet box to be for him, but then the magnet blocks end up being for themselves, uh, like independent of his will or of his aspirations, and so he'll get mad at their independence and just knock the whole other thing, whole thing down as a way to assert himself and to show the world who's boss that it's not independent from him. That's white people, <laughs> right? It's also the structure, the logical structure of desire. The logical structure of desire is such that it's the, the rationality to snuff out the independence of objects in the world and to affirm that everything in the world is for you. That's, uh, so when I consume something, that's what I'm doing. That's, uh, uh, you know, I'm taking its independence. I am ex extinguishing it while making it a part of me and then pooping out what I don't need. So that's like, that's just not just consuming, but objects in the world also include other people. So like I said, when this is, this is colonialism insofar as when other people aren't working for you, you want to extinguish their independence and have them work for you. And, and make sure that it's known to be you. Now, this is where the philosopher I study a lot is Hegel, but I didn't just study them. Martin Luther King studied them, and Marx studied them, and C.L.R. James studied them, and, and Fred Hampton. A lot of, a lot of uh, Newton studied him, Hugh P. Newton. So a lot of the black people you want to be around studied him. So I study Hegel for a few different reasons. He was like, all right, so historically, you can kind of see this like as a logical construct within the... Uh, um, a struggle for recognition, right? So two people who want to extinguish the independence of each other struggle for recognition onto death. They care about their self more than they care about life. They care about their truth more than they like their truth and the truth is in themselves. And so they want to extinguish the independence of others and the other person has to work for them for that, uh, for that independence to be extinguished. But so what you get there in that struggle for recognition is one person saying, like, I'd rather work for you than die. And the other person saying, like, well, good for you. Make what I want and I won't kill you and I'll just consume what you make. And so the master gets a distorted sense of reality uh, because everything in the world is for them. The independence of everything in the world is gone away. But um, the slave Hegel says, the master can just consume, consume, consume till he dies. The real story becomes with the slave because what, the, what happens with the slave is they become a slave to the master. So all of their work goes to somebody else. They, um, they are so, they have been stricken by the fear of death <laughs> such that uh, the fear of being nothing 
that they're willing to do anything. So master tells them to make shoes, don't make shoes. Master tells them to pick cotton, don't pick cotton. And so what will happen is that they'll end up being a craftsperson. They'll end up being like someone who makes something, but not a craftsperson who like does a job and who's recognized it. There'll be a slave who's own, who would do anything. It's not someone who picks to be a plumber or a, or a roofer or anything like that. It's someone who would do anything to avoid being nothing, which is death, which is like the conception of death, right? So, um, but what happens with the slave in Hegel's kind of conception is that he sees the slave actually does get a kind of freedom. So the freedom of the slave um, comes in their making. They do get to extinguish the will of something in nature that they form. So if they're a slave cobbler, they get to make a shoe. Even if they have to give the shoe to the, uh, the master. And in being able to kind of turn something into nature, so turn something from the independence of nature into something that's for you, even if it's, even if the you that it's for is the will of the master, you've kind of uh, want some sort of freedom. So there's a kind of like very, 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 very low greed freedom that's a cow, uh, accord, uh, accorded to um, slaves. Now the Greeks looked at this and said like, all right, well, maybe. But what's really going on is the Stoics said like, actually, what this shows is that real truth isn't in the object that the slave is about to make. Real truth is in the, the form, the intellectual form that the slave imposes upon the object. So the shoe's not a shoe because the slave did it because the master wants a shoe. The shoe's a shoe because the slave was able to like put the form of a foot onto a piece of leather to make it a shoe and not like a glove. I told you I was going to go deep. You can watch this a few times, but it's going to get even better in a second. So the Stoics like, all right, so it's actually in his mind. What we need to do is understand that truth, to get to truth, you need to withdraw from the world. And what happens, what you do in the world isn't, is about power relationships, not about truth. Don't worry about that. What the, the truth is in your mind. And so we can get to truth by thought and thinking and just kind of having a, um, and this is the Stoic. It's, it's, people ask me why I'm not a Stoic. And I say, well, it's, it's a religion of slavery. Uh, I want, <laughs> I don't want to uh, just live in my mind. I actually want to change the world and be free in the world. Uh, like there's no freedom in the sunken place. <laughs> You're a passenger on your body. All right. So what? Uh, so the Stoics like, well, just withdraw from the world. It's in your mind. We got a lot of like low key Stoic black churches say like, well, don't worry about the world. Just wait till you get in heaven. That's, that's, that's why you got slave theology. Don't, you'll not get justice here. You know, this is white people's land. Just, you'll get your peace in heaven. Now, I want my justice right now. Um, not, in the, not in the hereafter. I'm living for this life. All right? So, uh, the Stoics, like, just withdraw from the world. Know that truth is in your mind. Here is... This is going to be a problem. Um... That stoicism then slips into skepticism that says everything in the world is just false. Reality is uh, unchanging. Everything in the world change, changes, but you want to actually don't worry about the world. The world is full of confusion and corruption. Uh, the skeptic is just everything, nothing in the world you can trust. The tr only thing you can trust is like the eye, the unchangeable eye that 
perceives and thinks. Not anything out there, but like your consciousness, the self-consciousness. So that's what truth is. It's in the eye. But then the Stoic starts to like look at contradictions in that because the eye is only the eye through its intercourse in the world. Right, so it's an empirical consciousness. It's a consciousness that a consciousness that only emerges because of its sensing and its constitutive of its sensing of this world that we've decided is broken. So, what's not truth? Truth isn't in the mind. Uh, it isn't in the eye, the, the the letter I. Isn't it's isn't in the ego, the self that senses and feels. The real truth, the unchangeable truth, is in this other unchangeable entity. Right? And that's, some people call it God, but it's the unchangeable. Because the world is corrupt, and you know it's corrupt because it always changes and confuses you. You only get your identity through your interactions with the world, so your identity is already a little bit corrupt. But, thank goodness, someone has lent you a real, that has lent you insight into the truth. It's not, the truth isn't out there, the truth isn't in your mind, the truth is with the unchangeable. And it is through the grace of the unchangeable that um, I have any dignity at all. Without that, I would be a mess. Sound familiar? All right. Well, uh, so this is how skepticism kind of glides into an unhappy consciousness. And so at this level of the unhappy consciousness that knows that all of its relationships are, are bogus, but the only true thing is something other than it. It's an eye that has gifted it, uh, like uh, the sensibility to understand it's like <laughs> depraved conditions or um so how does the how does the person in this situation rescue any meaning from their from their life well they can actively uh you know they could pray to the uh, to the unchangeable they could pray to what's good and the true they could pray to that but then that prayer is an activity. So that, since that prayer is an activity of the, the conscious self, and that uh, it's going to be fraught also with all of the problems of the world. So prayer isn't going to be the answer. Directly prayer, direct prayer, isn't going to be the answer. What else is going to be? So if that's not going to be the answer, what's going to be the answer? Uh, what about uh, surrendering yourself to the, to the unchangeable? to God. If you just surrender yourself to God, you'll be fine. Well, you can't directly surrender yourself to God because that's an activity that's um, uh, that's an activity of your broken self. So you're going to screw that up just like you screw up everything else in your life. So what you do, and this is where Hegel, um, I'm going to get, this is what, the train keeps going, but this is where we're going to get off because this is the, the lot, we've run into the logic of, of the white church. So, so what you do is you surrender yourself to an intermediary a mediator on earth. So you, that way you can do the unchangeable's will by listening to a mediator of the unchangeable. And that's why you got priests who make their, um, who, who get paid to tell you God's will. And you surrender, and, and you could be holy by just surrendering yourself to that mediator who will then interpret uh, the unchangeable for you so that you won't screw up the interpretation. You'll just do what the Lord says and you'll be good. So you need a mediator. And that, uh, so you, so it's not your will that's done. It's thine will that's done as interpreted you from a rep, as a representative uh, on earth. 
And that's where you get your truth. You get your truth laundered through your priest or whatever. And then uh, you can say, well, you know. Now, why this is, this, is, this is the logic of manifest destiny. You're still trying to extinguish the, you're still trying to make the world for truth. And now if your priest says, go out and kill people, you can say that, well, you know, that's, 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 I'm making the world for truth. I'm extinguishing their independence because the structure of desire hasn't changed. The independence of other things is still like a problem for conforming the world to truth. But uh, now I found a way to launder it through a mediator. And uh, truth is now alien from me. The only way I can get to it, can't get to it directly. I can only get to it by surrendering myself to the will of a mediator. And that through that mediator, through, through surrendering myself to the will of the mediator, I then surrender myself to uh, the unchangeable itself. Right. And then to which your actions are just but a vessel of God. It's not you. So how does this work out? It, it actually, this is, this is the white church. <laughs> the white church, uh, you know, is a part of the reinforcing system of white supremacy that, uh, you know, legitimizes racial terror. And this is how it, it does it. And it allows the terrorists to feel bad because the terrorists are just upholding the dictates of the church. So this kid, uh, this kid, he's a grown man, he's 21. So this guy shoots a bunch of people and then he says, well, you know, I, it, it, purity, religion, religion, religious purity drove me to do it because there were sexual temptations because I was, I, was I was tempted by them. So I needed to remove the temptation and pretty much extinguish the, independence, uh, the independent existence of other things in the world that aren't for my variety of, of, of Christian learning. Now, he can say that and his pastors now can say, well, you know, this poor guy he misinterpreted the word and misinterpreted the theology because the theology is purity theology is much more complicated than that. And he's so broken that he misinterpreted. So it's not our fault that he's broken. And he's saying, I'm just a fallen uh, person. How did I know? I was just trying to do the best what can. I'm just a good Christian that way. He's saying it's not his fault. So whose fault is it? If it's not the pastor's fault, um, for teaching him this purity theology, and it's not the Christian's fault because he's just a, a fallen man who uh, uh, is lapsed and is part of this broken world, then whose fault is it? And that's the cunning of white supremacy. It's kind of obscure blame. I'll tell you, it's, it's a pastor's fault. It's the whole church's fault. You have an entire Listen. You got a legacy of this church. This church has a legacy of white terrorism. Uh, and they're surprised when they produce yet another terrorist. Yeah, they, 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 we, they, they have a white terrorist, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the Jesus of white terrorism, of racial terrorism. And they like it that way. And the gender relations... Oh, just one of the operations of terrorism. It's a purity politics. Anytime you have really screwed up, <clears throat> don't be surprised. Anytime you have really screwed up racial dynamics, you're also going to have really screwed up gender dynamics um, because gender is one of the ways in which reproduction, the, the reproduction of racial hierarchies works. And make no mistake, it's not going to get fixed with fixing the gender dynamics because the gender dynamics is just a technology of the racial hierarchy. 
Right. So if you're serious about, um, if you're serious about fixing gender relationships in the church, you have to understand first what gender relationships do to uh, sustain the, the racial hierarchy. Because if you just fix the gender relationships in the church, but don't do anything about the racial, racial hierarchy, you're just going to have uh, racist gender relationships. And if you try to fix the racist, if you try to fix the, the racial relationships without fixing the gender relationships, you'll actually do pretty well. <laughs> this is why the suffragettes didn't want black men to vote because if black men vote, it turns out that like, it, it, like, like it, it'll actually bring justice, right? So, um, you'll get, if you're serious, if you're really serious about racial justice, you'll get gender justice. If you're really serious about gender justice, you're not going to get, you, the chances of you getting racial justice are small. You'll just get more, you'll just get an equal percentage of women uh, being white, like violent white supremacists. You get more lady cops shooting people. <laughs> Not just that woman in Colorado. I think she was in Colorado who did it. All right, so what I'm trying to tell you is that the logic of the white church is part of the one of the reinforcing institutions in white supremacy. It works with police and school and all of the others that, that sustain terror. And it does it through, often through now gender politics, things you can't do to black men uh, because they're black, you can do because they're men. Things you can't do to Asian women because they're Asian, now you could do because they're women. Uh, so what happens is a screwed up racial politics gets coded through screwed up gender politics. But the gender politics is a mechanism to sustain the racial hierarchy. So the 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 mopey the the whale is the racial hierarchy. Um, you know, I said before, and I actually believe it. I think people aspire to have gender problems. It's a class aspiration to have gender problems. Because by the time you have gender problems, that means like you've beat the race problem. And if you're a black person who's beat the race problem, then you're signaling to the world that 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 you've won. You're a good Negro, right? So. Um, you aspire, people aspire to have gender problems. Gender by middle gender problems are middle class problems. And I, I was talking to it's funny. I was talking to a, a Southeast Asian person about this, about the women's movement in Southeast Asia, and they're like, "Look, it's actually led by Brahmin women. Surprise, surprise, uh, led by high class and and and, and business class women, um, and who have no interest in actually like getting justice, securing justice for the untouchables." Right. So by the time you, so this is still, it ends up, it's women, like gender problems are class aspirations on the liberal variety. Uh, and, and so you got to watch these people who uh, put gender first because they're actually, especially black people. If you're a black person, you're putting gender first. That means you're just like, yeah, you're, you're a problem. So, um, uh, yeah, it's a class aspiration. It's a class aspiration. People aspire to have gender problems. Um, because that means that they've gotten out of the muck of, that they've signaled to the world that they've gotten out of the muck of racial problems. Talking like this is why white liberals get on, get, um, get upset at me. But, you know, I'm right, so let's be honest. And if you look in your heart, you know that I am.
Now, there was also something interesting happened in San Francisco. A, 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 a boomer, a 75-year-old woman beat the crap out of uh, a guy who was being a jerk to her. And everyone's like, yes, queening her. And I support her. You know, she, apparently she had like a, she took a wooden board and just started smacking him in the head. And people like, why do people think that we fight by Marquis of Queensbury rules? Because we put, we told them that like, we, we handle them with kitty gloves, but someone can screw you up if they actually don't care about the, the, the Marquis of Queensbury rules and just, just want to screw you up. Right. So this woman, like she wasn't going to punch him in the face. Like she was supposed to, she took a board and hit him in the face and then kept hitting and sent him to the hospital. And everyone's like, yes, queening her, what people aren't doing, which I find fascinating is saying like, well, you know, this should be solved with nonviolence. Which is what black people are told all the time. We're supposed to respond to white terrorism through nonviolence. Nonviolence. Because nonviolence, the way one comes out of the mouth of a white person is just a strategy for black management. It's just a strategy for racial control and management. It's not actually a serious way to secure justice. <laughs> Violence must be on the table. Um, and I, I'm, oh, I'm okay with, you know, violence when it's appropriate. It must be on the table. We know we have a standing army and like an enormous police, um, uh, police presence. So like we're okay with violence. We're just not okay with vi black people fighting back. That's, that, people only talk about nonviolence when they talk about black people fighting back. That's when you get like a bunch of Blue Lives Matter people coming to talk to black kids about nonviolence. <laughs> they'll, they'll be like, Blue Lives Matter. Also, black people, nonviolence is the way you go, is the way you secure. And uh, this is what oh, Big Jim Folsom, the old uh, white populist government governor of Alabama, Big Jim, he was talking about Malcolm X. Uh, not, not Malcolm X. Uh, Malcolm X wouldn't have taken that meeting. He was talking to Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King, and he told Martin Luther King, well, you know, I don't like what you're doing, but like, do it like Gandhi. Just don't fight back. So Big Jim Folsom, the, the, the racist governor of Alabama, was, was his advice to Martin Luther King was like, all right, nonviolence is, uh, if you're going to protest, just make sure it's nonviolence, and, and that means don't fight back. So when white people talk about nonviolence and they preach nonviolence, they pretty much are preaching you don't fight back. Because fighting back is, for, uh, not, is not for black people. I'm a fan of fighting back, so go ahead and fight back. And that's, that's fine. All right, so thank you for your time. Uh, once I said, once again, go ahead and kick in five, fifteen, or fifty dollars a month to www.funkyacademic.com because I like to think I provide a service, and without which, I don't know. If you appreciate the work I do every week and you think that I should continue to do it because I'm giving you the quality of political knowledge and insight that will help you not squander your life and kind of rescue meaning from it, then go ahead and go to www.funkyacademic.com and kick in five, fifteen, or fifty dollars a month or make one enormous donations. I like the monthlies because it allows me to budget more and that'll help me, you know, with a marketing budget or getting better equipment that works all the time. Because a lot of, in a lot of ways, freedom means having equipment that works every time you turn it on. <laughs> and I want to be a free Negro. So, um, if you like what I do, go to funkyacademic.com and contribute. Thanks often comes in the form of cash. And the site takes 